Radio, a constantly changing art form. Marconi. Lakehurst, New Jersey. All the humanity. The Mercury Theater. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. The New World Order. Hi, this is Casey Kasem. From that first broadcast, a medium that has been proved. Home. Trim. Winnow. Bonsai. And prune and deposited here today. Ready to be moistened with the watering can of evolutionary dew, this is the Dennis Miller Show. Come to me, my babies. Let me quell your pain. Welcome to another episode of the broadcast tribute to the Dennis Miller Show, celebrating a decade since the launch of the Dennis Miller Show in 2007. Very excited for this installment of the Blackcast. Later on this hour, I'm going to catch up with Jillian Melcher, who writes for Heat Street. She's a fellow at the Steamboat Institute and the Independent Women's Forum. She was a great guest on The Dennis Miller Show. And for months, if not years, she didn't correct the fact that we didn't pronounce her name right. And I'm really looking forward to talking to her. I will also get the opportunity to visit with the author of The Abomination, Where's the Birth Certificate? Where's the real birth certificate? Partners in crime, goodnight Obama, hunting Hitler, new scientific evidence that Hitler escaped Nazi Germany, and of course, the Shroud Codex. I'm talking about mysterious visitor from the East, Dr. Jerome Corsi, who recently got a new job, Washington Bureau Chief for Infowars.com. That's Alex Jones's website. Someone else who has also gotten a new job is a great friend of the Dennis Miller Show. Deborah Saunders, who is now the White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review Journal, also a columnist for Creator Syndicate. Deborah J. Saunders on Twitter at Deborah J. Saunders. Deborah, thanks so much for joining us here on the Blackcast as we celebrate a decade of the Dennis Miller Show, even though it hasn't been on for two years. Christian, I, I wouldn't want to miss an anniversary like this. Yeah, <laughs> an, an anniversary that. <laughs> It's kind of not accurate. You know, we're celebrating eight years, two years ago or something. I don't know. There's so much math involved. But it's just mm -hmm. a fun excuse to catch up with uh, some of our favorite guests from the old radio show, of which you were one. Not just the regular radio show when Dennis would host. You were always uh, very agreeable to come on when I would find out, you know, about seven in the morning Pacific time. Oh, I'm hosting today. <laughs> Can you be on in half an hour? And you would usually say yes. And I always appreciated that. So thank you. It was always fun, Christian. Oh, yes, it was. Thanks for stating the obvious. Anyway, I'm so excited that you have this new job, the White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review Journal. What exactly does that mean? So when Sean Spicer or President Trump have a press conference, you're there in the room, sometimes hoping to be called upon. Are you part of that, that gaggle, as we see on TV? Yes, I am. Uh, well, now, gaggle means it's not seen on TV. Do you want to hear? Do you want to hear the definitions of this? Yes. So I love when, stuff when like Trump this. Has, <laughs> when Trump talks to the press, it's a press conference. When his spokesman talks, it's a briefing. And when it's not on camera, it's a gaggle. Oh wow! <laughs> I didn't realize that there were all these different terms. Yeah. You would think I'd watched yeah. enough West Wing that I would have known the difference, but uh, apparently. And, and, I, and I'm the person standing at the side with her hand up, not getting called on. I've been called on once. And who uh, called on you? Sean. Okay, Spicer, so yeah. so Sean Spicer, uh, also a past guest on the Dennis Miller Show. I put together a list 
of Trump administration people who had been on the Dennis Miller show, Sean Spicer, Kellyanne Conway, of course, President Trump, just not speaking about things presidential. He was speaking about The Apprentice. Uh, even Steve <laughs> Bannon had been on. So I, I went really? through it. Steve Bannon had done that Hillary Clinton movie. So that was, I think, the, the one time that he was actually doing a lot of press. Mm-hmm. We got everybody on, but uh, I'm glad to hear that Sean Spicer did call on you because to just be there and never get called on, it's more than a little rude. And do you feel like he appreciated your question or is it going to be a while before he asks you again? Well, let me put it this way. It was a, it was a while ago since he since he called on me. There are a lot of people who never get called on in that room. I, I say to make myself feel better. But the question that I asked, I got a lot of heat for in certain circles because I asked him a question about the Oscars. There, there were there were some people who felt that it was beneath beneath it for a reporter to ask about that. Um, in fact, of course, I, and Kellyanne Conway made this thing where she's like, she palm face. What is it? Palm face? Is that what they call it when you put your your hand to your face? Like, oh, that's so disgusting. And I I'm believe thinking, it's okay, I well. believe it's face palm. But uh, face palm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. My dyslexia always <laughs> serving me well. So anyway, um, but you know, I sort of wondered if he was going to be watching the Oscars and if he was going to be commenting. If there was a Meryl Streep moment, and a lot of people wanted to know too. So. You know, I mean, I think the rules are a lot different when you do think about to refer back to President Trump and The Apprentice. He's the president, and yet he's still really focused on the ratings for a TV show that he's not on and the fact that The Terminator was the host and he thought he did a terrible job. So, you know, I think that a lot of the the I'm using air quotes, which you can't see because this is a podcast. The rules. <laughs> that means that you don't mean what you're quoting. Yes. Is that, is that correct? Exactly. Please, yes. In this new world. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I think the rules are, are at least a little bit different right now. And I, for one, I think that because you weren't asking who do you think is going to win Best Picture – You were more saying, you know, do you think that there will be political moments during the show and will you watch it? I think that that's I feel like it's legitimate. So I don't know if my opinion carries as much weight as Sean Spicer's, but I'm in your corner, Deborah. I I don't think he minded it. And, you know, it's funny because people watch these briefings and they think, boy, that's a stupid question. And I thought that, too. I've even written that right about things that have happened. You're asking a question for that moment in time, and I really did want to know if he was going to be tweeting on the Oscars. We know what he did with Meryl Streep, and I was curious, so, so I thought it was a good question. Yeah, so that's a lot of your day is standing there not getting called on. Uh, what sort of other things do you do? Do, you, do they bring all of the, the White House press corps along on certain events? Do you get to travel with you know key members of the administration? What's, what's an average day like for you, or is, are there no average days? Well, there, there's not just not getting called on, but there's waiting to not get called on. <laughs> <laughs> That's a large part of the job. Wait, waiting because to not get called on sounds like it wait, could take a while. Well, because so there's usually a briefing at 1.30. Sometimes it's earlier, sometimes it's later, and sometimes it starts much later than it's supposed to. So, so that's part of it. In order to travel with the president, you need a hard pass, and that's something you'd have to go through a bureaucratic process for. I don't have mine yet, but I will be. Um, I was supposed to go out with the vice president today, and that got canceled. I think it might have something to do with the health care vote. <clears throat> the what? So anyway, <laughs> uh, that's another thing you do is go is going to places and find out something's canceled. Right. And of course, I mean, you just you, you, um, I've been in on the press conferences he's held with world leaders, and I'm just watching the policies that they come out and writing about them. You know, talking to people who are involved and who see them, and that's what it is. Being a reporter is different than being a columnist. As a columnist, I basically picked what I wanted to write about. 
I didn't have, and I could wait a few days, but that's not the case anymore. Yeah, I think that you are probably you might sit down to write something and then, you know, a few words in, oh no, I'm writing about something completely different now, which is obviously much more pressing. And I, it seems to me like that lifestyle is far more exhausting than being the token conservative at the San Francisco Chronicle. <laughs> and it's a lot more uncertain. I feel like it's a much harder job, but it being different, you know, there are certainly going to be moments that you probably wouldn't think that oh, this is all very exciting. But there have to be sort of some exciting moments, just the sheer difference of what this is compared to what you were doing. Can I tell you that that press conference that the president gave all by his lonesome that went over an hour? Yeah. That was one of the most amazing press conferences I have ever sat through. And there are times in this job when you're, when you're thinking, wow, I can't, I'm, this is the biggest story in the world. This is, so, there's, I never know what's going to happen next. You go into work on a Monday and you have no idea what you're going to be writing at the end of the week. You, I mean, you, you, you may know what you're doing that day. You probably do. But there are so many changes and there's so much drama with this administration that you're – I mean, that's the reason why the job had so much appeal is that I just don't know what's going to happen next. And how many people can you say that about? I don't think most people can say that, to tell you the honest truth. Uh, you referenced that press conference, which I, for one, also found very enjoyable because you could just see how much President Trump enjoyed it and how a lot of people in the room were uncomfortable. How does it feel to be standing there amongst the people where some of your colleagues are the ones that he's, you know, he wasn't particularly mean to them, but he might have disparaged some of the credentials and things. What is that like to be standing there, even if you're not next to the person? Is there sort of a vibe in that crowd, whether it's a it's a gaggle or not? Uh, is there a specific vibe that you feel there that would obviously not be translated on television? I think that what may surprise your listeners is this. The press corps changed. There are a lot of new people in the room. They're not all the same people who used to cover these sorts of things. And so I, I think that during the Obama years, you, there was a pretty sympathetic press. They would go into those briefings, and they sort of knew what was going to happen. And Josh Earnest, President Obama, they, they're sort of long talkers, right? Right. So they could take a long time answering a question. I mean, it's really funny because uh, when a foreign dignitary comes – they have a press conference, and each country's press is asked two questions, gets, gets to ask two questions, right? With Obama, this could take a long, long time. With Donald Trump, it doesn't. It, it, at any rate, the, the press corps is not as monolithic as, as it used to be. And you, I'm just sitting there, I'm just watching what he's saying and listening to it. You know, I, I went to the CPAC, um, you know, conservatives who met recently in, in Maryland, all, I mean, it was basically two days of watching people trash the media and calling the media the enemy. And watch, I watched Steve Bannon say it, and watched the president say it. And, you know, I, that's what he thinks. Yeah. Hey, that's what I'm saying. I'm interviewing people, asking them what they're thinking, and they tell you yeah, the media they're bad. Not you. Yeah. And well, these were not people. At least he's very them. clear yeah. about the fact that he feels that way. You know, he, he makes no bones about it. But uh, I know I wonder if it's one of those like, oh, you know, but you're one of the good ones. I, I hope that you at least get that sometimes from people in this administration that you're covering. 
In any case, Deborah, I know that you are so busy right now, and I really appreciate you just taking a few minutes to talk to us, not only to look back on the decades since the launch of the Dennis Miller Show, but to just kind of bring us up to speed on the new job. I'd say we should talk again for longer when things settle down, but I feel like... They're not going to. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that'll be the end (laughs) of this administration, regardless of how many years that is. And they probably won't settle down then either. But uh, I do hope we get to catch up more and chat longer on air, off air, all that good stuff. And now that you're in D.C., oddly enough, I'm probably more likely to be able to meet up and catch up with you and Wesley than when you lived in San Francisco. So, Well, great. And later, Gator. <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Later, Gator. Okay, thanks, Christian. Thanks so much to Deborah Saunders, and congrats again on her new job as the White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review Journal. Ah, uh, yes, that music can mean only one thing. Joining us now, the author of The Abomination. Where's the birth certificate? Where's the real birth certificate? Partners in crime, goodnight Obama, hunting Hitler, new scientific evidence that Hitler escaped Nazi Germany, and of course, the Shroud Codex. Mysterious visitor from the East, Dr. Jerome Corsi, who recently got a new job, Washington Bureau Chief for Infowars.com. Welcome to the Blackcast as we celebrate 10 years of The Dennis Miller Show. Dr. Corsi. Well, I'm great to be with you, Christian. I'm, I, I, I missed... Dennis' show not being on the air was a terrific show. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to work on and just be a part of. And, you know, there was always great interaction with the guests and the listeners. And you, I did a quick little bit of research. You made 53 appearances on the Dennis Miller Show over the years, Dr. Corsi. Yeah, Yeah, you were always one of our favorite guests because, you know, he could have fun and joke around with you. But he always did really value the information that you brought to us. What was it like for you to interact with Dennis, who, you know, was very knowledgeable, but maybe didn't take some of the issues of the day as serious as other hosts who might talk to you? I love Dennis. I mean, Dennis, I have, first of all, I have uh, always had tremendous respect for his intelligence. I mean, he's one of the smartest guys, I think, around in either news or comic news or however you want to describe it. Uh, he's a brilliant comedian. He's just a brilliant guy. So he's quick and he, you know, immediate responses and uh, a, a vocabulary and ability, facility with language. I don't know I've, I've ever seen anyone do more in, entertainingly. So it was always fun to be with him, and I always enjoyed it. It was stimulating. I mean, I've I've known Dennis for a long time, and I've I've seen him perform in person, and uh, and we've gotten, I think, to be kind of friends over the years. So I'm very fond of Dennis Miller, and I really admire uh, what he does, his intelligence, his his humor, his brilliance, and uh, I wish him well, and I hope he comes back on the air. Yeah, well, so do I, just as someone who, like you, enjoys Dennis and the presence he provides. But also, you know, I feel like I might have an in and try to get a job if he were to go back on the air. But, you know, he's very happy to be semi-retired. I've visited with him a few times, and uh, he's very happy with the way things are. He's still on the O'Reilly Factor once a week. And, you know, I think he's he's a bit more engaged now because... 
there is a president that he feels like might actually be able to get some things done. I think that, like a lot of people, Dennis was a little disheartened when President Obama got reelected. I, I don't think I'm speaking out of school by saying that he was very clearly surprised and disappointed that America had voted for four more years of the Obama administration. And I kind of wonder about you personally, as the 2016 election was winding down, were you part of the many people that felt like Donald Trump just wasn't going to get elected? Or, or did you feel like the media was missing something really important? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I was always, I've known Donald Trump for going on to 40 years. I mean, I've known him a long time. And uh, I felt from the beginning he was going to win. Uh, Roger Stone wrote quite a bit about me in his book, uh, The Making of the President of 2016, which I think is an excellent book. I mean, not just because he wrote about me, but I think he really, Roger did a great job of showing you know, the true strength of Donald Trump. And I don't, I don't think people have a clue at, at Donald Trump's depth and his ability to manage, his ability to pull through adversity. Uh, I felt from the beginning that the mainstream media was biased against Trump. They still are. Uh, they're still trying to do everything they can to delegitimize the presidency and undermine Donald Trump. I don't think they're going to succeed. But what I want to look at is here's, you know, he goes to Louisville last week or Kentucky, and he fills the auditorium again. And you just got these elite reporters and elite media from New York, Washington, and L.A. who really don't represent the American people. They're so out of touch they don't know they're out of touch. I mean, that's the that's the problem. And uh, I think we're going to be having a very strong presidency. I expect it will have ups and downs like all presidencies. But I think when you look over you know, the first year, uh, we're only really you know, a couple of months into the Donald Trump presidency. He's already done a lot uh, to shake things up, and he will do more. Uh, I think the achievements are going to be there, and I think the American people are going to see a return to economic growth, a uh, return to jobs, and I expect the Trump presidency is going to be very strong. Yeah, before we even get into the specifics of the policies and what he's trying to accomplish, what do you think it says about the state of the country that people across the country came out and voted for an outsider like Donald Trump, who admittedly was very brash, very rough around the edge edges, but that was probably part of the appeal, wouldn't you imagine, that he really spoke his mind? Oh, absolutely. I think people are tired of the political correctness. Uh, another reason why Dennis, I think, was so popular is that Dennis could mock and does mock the political correctness, sees it for you know, the absurdity that it is, where you aren't permitted to say what's obviously in front of you. You know, you can't say radical Islamic terrorism. I mean, even in Great Britain, we see how long it took for the attack on Parliament before the British press reluctantly let the world know that this was a Muslim. I mean, it was obvious in the first couple of minutes of the attack with the type of the attack, you know, the car attack and the knife attack and all the rest of it, that this was, in, you know, the ISIS current mode, driving trucks into crowds and cars into crowds. Again, the American people, I think, are sick of seeing Washington as politics. This is the, what, you know, the great flyover country, as I like to say in L.A. and Washington and New York, because that's all they do is fly over it, yeah. uh, is really the heart of America. And the Americans are not ready to have the most critical issue in their lives be whether we need to let transgenders in the six-year-old's bathroom in the elementary school. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you have issues like that that are obviously important to people who are transgender, but I do think that the majority of Americans don't feel that it's important to them 
and even if they might think it is kind of an important issue to figure out the right way to handle it, there are many more important issues than that. And I think well, sort and, of what that's you're... what I'm saying. I, I'm really not, you know, I'm, I'm saying that yes, of course, that's an important area issue to a transgender, and you know, I'm not trying to demean transgenders or anything else. But I'm saying in the scope of things, we've had transgenders as long as history has been around, as far as I'm concerned, as long as human beings have been around. That, you know, that there's always been a solution to let, let them use whatever bathroom they are of the gender at the moment. And, you know, that's worked. I mean, you go down to New Orleans and watch the show bar and, you know, Canal Street, and you see the extent to which transgenders have been a part of culture in the United States forever. But Never a big problem, never the basis upon which we have to dictate all policy. And I, I think Americans are not quite willing to equate all these rights. I mean, you know, the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, when you saw Martin Luther King and the protesting, and it was obvious to people, anybody of any intelligence, that, yeah, you, you can't discriminate against someone because of the color of their skin in terms of not sitting at the lunch counter or not having a job or... You know, any other form of that could not be able to move into a house or all the other, you know, for anybody who is alive and remembers the 50s, the discrimination that was possible and popular throughout parts of the country was obviously abhorrent. Uh, the, the problem is some of these other extensions of rights are more problematic because it, you know, sexual orientation has more religious meanings and connotations for many people. And it's not quite the same as color of skin, which I think I could argue is really uh, an incidental characteristic, like color of your eyes or any other color of your hair. I mean, but in terms of sexual orientation, it's a much more significant issue in terms of how you structure society, how you raise children, and you know, whether what the religious freedoms are. So what happened to the country is the left has gone off the cliff in terms of demanding every last little bit of these rights when the country was willing to go pretty far and say, yeah, okay, same-sex marriage. You know, personally, sexual orientation for most, for me to know about most people is just simply too much information. I don't really care. But when it gets imposed on you is to, you know, fine, you, does every baker have to bake a same-sex marriage cake? Can't we have some that do and it'd be enough that some people are willing to bake it. Do we have to you know, use this as a club to attack religious freedom rights of those who want to adhere to the First Amendment and have their beliefs, not just in their closet, reading their Bible with a candle, or the way they live their lives? And these are, these are very important questions. The left, I think, just went overboard in terms of pushing the envelope of where American social consciousness had developed. That's always a problem. You yeah, know, I mean, I think to some point. extent, you know, in, in, in hockey sometimes, you know, you'll just check somebody into the boards and knock them down a little bit. And that's kind of what's happened to the left. That's sort of what they needed. And by the way, I think it was interesting that you referenced New Orleans, because if there's ever a city where I don't know if people even look for where the bathroom is, much less determine which one they're supposed to use <laughs> and just kind of go out in the street or whatever, that's New Orleans for me. But I do think it's an interesting point because there was definitely this overreach. And again, as we said, these are issues that are very important to some people. But I think that thinking that this was the most important thing to most people is the sort of reason why the election went the way it did. And you referenced earlier flyover country. And for me, you know, look, I 
thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win, not so much because the media was saying she was. It just seems like things like that are preordained, you know, that there's there, there are these people that make these decisions for us and they're like, all right, everything's in line. This will be Hillary's turn. But I was very surprised. And for me, the moment where I thought, oh, I think he could win was when they couldn't call Pennsylvania for hours because that's not deep in flyover country. You know, I think a lot of the media elites and stuff in New York and Washington have a lot of relatives and stuff in there. But when you would talk to people throughout the state of Pennsylvania, they would just say, look, I don't see any Hillary signs. There's Trump signs everywhere. And to not be able to sort of hold on to that specific area was an indication that the message that Trump had was really resounding with people across the country. Well, Hillary ran a terrible campaign. Her basic premise was, I'm a woman, vote for me. Yeah. need a woman president. I think it was two well, things. It was, her- it was first, one, I'm a woman, vote for me. And two, hey, I'm not that other guy. And not taking yeah, the time I mean, to say what I would do better, but just I'm not him, and I'm a woman. What else I, do you need? <laughs> identity politics are not enough to carry an election. And Hillary looked old. She looked sick. She didn't campaign hard, especially at the end. Uh, she had a lot of baggage. Clinton Foundation, I attacked that real book, Partners in Crime. The Clinton Foundation, I think, is a criminal foundation. It does not violate the charitable giving laws. That should be shut down, and there should be consequences for that. Uh, the WikiLeaks were extremely damaging. Hillary's policies in Benghazi haunted her. Libya is still a disaster. It's a, you know, she's essentially destabilized much of the Middle East with the support she and President Obama gave to the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and these were big issues that hung over her campaign, and Hillary Clinton did not effectively address them. She didn't counter and explain why her foreign policy secretary of state was beneficial to the United States or her reset with Russia. And, you know, the truth is both Hillary and Podesta were being paid by Russia. And we knew this during the campaign. Now, the Accountability Institute, Peter Schweitzer wrote a huge, very important report from Russia with money. And then the WikiLeaks came out and showed that Podesta under the table had gotten stock from a Russian money laundering company set up in the Netherlands. I mean, the Democrats did not have clean hands going into this election. Yeah, that's actually one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. You've written a few articles for InfoWars, and I've seen, I was reading them as I was preparing to talk to you today. Talk about this notion that you wrote about pretty extensively that Russia very much wanted Hillary Clinton to win, and sort of some of the evidence that you have that shows that this was very clearly what they want, which is, of course, contrary to the mainstream media narrative that all that Putin wanted was Trump to be president. Well, I mean, it's really bizarre. Right now, the Democrats are engaging in a form of McCarthyism. I mean, you know, they're demonizing Russia. The Democrats have never demonized Russia, going back to the 1930s. I mean, the Democrats always have been open to Russia and advocating the kind of socialism that they imagined to be what Russia was going to produce. Uh, and now suddenly, you know, look at Hillary. And remember the 2012 last debate in which Mitt Romney said that Russia was going to be a major issue. And President Obama belittled him, saying, oh, that's a 1970s idea. The reset that Hillary tried, they were doing, they were essentially giving Russia uh, technology. Hillary had, uh, through the deal with 
know, this, this, this Canadian entrepreneur had given a major portion of our uranium to Russia. Uh, that was extremely uh, controversial. Podesta was essentially on the Russian payroll. Uh, his brother was representing a Russian bank of shady natures. I mean, and all these ties with the Democrats, basically, if Hillary had been elected, Putin was set up to blackmail them. He had he could expose all kinds of things about the Democrats, and I don't think Putin would have wanted to forego that opportunity. Like when President Obama told Medvedev, "My second term, I'll be a lot more flexible." Well, I think Hillary was prepared to have been blackmailed by Putin, not to have been any more tough than the Obama administration was. What did the Obama administration do with the Ukraine and Crimea? They complained. Nothing really significant. And these are the issues I think the American people saw. And it's the hypocrisy of the Democrats wanting to blame the Republicans you know, for throwing the election by colluding with Russia. It's a bizarre idea. I mean, you know, we've had intelligence chiefs, uh, including uh, Hayden, General Hayden, say there's no evidence for this, really, that Russia colluded with the Republicans. And it was not. The release of Podesta's emails, which I think came from within the Democrats themselves, I think it was an internal job, someone who was a Bernie Sanders supporter, mad at Hillary and Podesta, that released them. But when you find, in the final analysis, it was what Podesta wrote in the emails that was so damaging. He hadn't written that content exposing the Democrats who have been basically hypocritical, who have been basically destroying the Sanders campaign intentionally, all of these issues, I think these were the key factors that ultimately hurt Hillary. Not that the emails were hacked and published, but what Podesta said in them. Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously if they were hacked and published and, you know, everything was above board, there really wouldn't have been a story there. But we all pretty quickly saw that the content in there was at least made you raise your eyebrows. And then the more that there was... There was just a feeling that there there was obviously something going on. You specifically were researching Podesta and talk a little bit about how that is kind of tied together to some stories. I guess the media had this evidence that someone named Roger Stone was proof of a connection between Julian Assange and Russia. Uh, I was reading a piece you wrote about it. Uh, can you sort of take a moment to explain all that for our listeners? What Roger Stone, of course, is the political, political operative who supported Richard Nixon was very important in Richard Nixon's career after he left the White House and supported Trump on his, his early on and for many years. And uh, Roger put out an email on, I think, the 12th of August that said, Podesta's about to get his, and it suggested he knew something was going to happen to Podesta. Well, the Democrats have taken that to mean that Roger was in touch with um, Assange or WikiLeaks and was planning or assisting in the release of Podesta's emails. I went back and showed that Roger and I had been working together through this period of time. By August 31st, I published, I didn't publish, I gave Roger a memo I'd been working on with Podesta's ties to Russia, which had nothing in them about it was disclosed subsequently in the WikiLeaks. This was all just the stuff around the Iranian deal and other ties I knew that Podesta had to Russia. And both Roger and I published articles on that. Then the WikiLeaks came out. But when Roger emailed Podesta's about to get his, because it was because Roger knew I was developing all this opposition research information about Podesta, 
I was about to start publishing it and sharing it with Roger so he could publish out of it too. It's interesting how you find yourself in the middle sometimes of these stories that you're covering, you know, that you were the one who was in touch with him and the media just decided that it must have been Julian Assange, whereas you right. have copious documents that show that you were researching and you were communicating with him. Uh, I, I found it all to be very interesting. One thing that I find very interesting is I'd love to talk about your new job. So now you're the Washington bureau chief for InfoWars. This is Alex Jones' website. It's sort of an offshoot of his radio show. It's been going on for years. Tell us what this new job entails and what it's like working for Alex's organization. Well, I, I'm very pleased. I mean, I worked for 12 years with uh, Joseph Herr at WMD.com, and I had 12 great years there uh, when uh, I realized I wanted to be more into the multimedia. I mean, the Alex with his instant streaming, you know, TV, live streaming TV and radio, I'll give a whole other dimension so I can be seen and I can do instant news, which Joseph Farah was, uh, his background was really print media and had a very strong, I think WND is a very strong site in terms of the content of the stories, but they have to be read. And with InfoWars, we've got the opportunity to uh, reach people who want to watch it on TV, hear it by radio, want a more interactive ability to get the news. I mean, I could have been working as in Washington as a White House correspondent with Joseph Farah. Uh, Joseph had offered me that opportunity. But here I will do it a little bit differently. I'll be more audiovisual. I will pursue White House press credentials. We're back today finalizing an office lease, and then following that, I'll set up down in Washington, and we will apply formally as InfoWars to get press credentials. I'm sure we'll get them. I'm sure it'll be a shock to many in the the mainstream media press in the press room of the White House when I show up. Yes. It'll be a a jolt. (laughs) I'm sure we'll get here. Oh, Bertha now in... The, press room. Yes, they'll say, I think that they'll, they might grab some security or the Secret Service and say, hey, I think there's a mistake. <laughs> Dr. Corsi is here in the room. And it's interesting you're talking about this because uh, just before I spoke with you, I was talking to a friend of the Dennis Miller Show, another friend, uh, Deborah Saunders, who used to write for the San Francisco Chronicle. She has a new job as the White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review-Journal, and she is also waiting on actually getting the hard credentials. So apparently these things take a little time. Well, we haven't applied yet, so we're going to uh, – I contacted them when I had left WND, but uh, we need to apply as an organization. I want to be – there's some requirements you've got to go through. I mean, you have to have an office in D.C. You have to I'll have to have a residence in D.C. You have to be a local correspondent to get permanent credentials. And there'll be requirements, but I'm sure we'll be able to get credentials. You know, it's just going through the process. But the Joes is going to be, the, the, the press room has always had a very cozy relationship between the White House and the mainstream media, even as to who gets to sit in which seats and all the other issues. It's been a very leftist press for decades, uh, and that's become the comfortable uh, assumed pattern in Washington. Now, if conservative media are allowed in on equal footing, it's going to destroy that equilibrium that, you know, the, the comfy insider position that the left has had controlling mainstream media news from Washington. And it's going to be a jolt. I mean, you're going to see the, uh, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It looks like it's going to be canceled. Trump is a shock to all the left who have not yet accepted his presidency, who are under the fantasy that they can delegitimize Trump or that they could impeach Trump or 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's very interesting you say that, Dr. Corsi, because one of the things that I do is I host a live video streaming show called The Trump Report. It's a weekly show with a kind of a roundtable conversation. I'm the moderator of it, and the panelists are very liberal, and they say every week, you know, oh, if Trump is still president, if he's even makes it all four years, and oh, but what about Russia? And they're saying all these things, and I'm like, I think think that maybe what the left needs to do is realize that they were talking about the wrong things, as you and I discussed a few moments ago, and focus on what Trump did right to actually get people to vote for him. You know, you can cry all you want that you won more of a popular vote because there's millions of liberals in California where I live. But now you need to just figure out what you need to do constructively to actually win. You can't just hope that, oh, don't worry, he's going to get kicked out of office because we as liberals don't like him. And I think that it's still very difficult for them to deal with this reality, like you're saying. But personally, I was a little disappointed that the White House Correspondents' Dinner was canceled because I hadn't talked to him about it. But I kind of thought that Dennis, Dennis Miller, would have been the perfect host for it now that Trump's president. <laughs> well, that would have been a good idea. I don't know if they would have let Dennis Yeah, <laughs> that's but, true. But, you know, the point is, I don't think the left is accepting the reality. They, they've gone with... Tom Perez as the head of the DNC. Now, he is a La Raza radical who went after prosecuting Sheriff Arpaio in a case that I think was prejudicial from the beginning. I'm going to be writing about that very soon here on, on InfoWars. I've got a lot of information on that. And I think it's a case in which he should be disbarred for the way they handled it. There should be prosecutions of the Justice Department, criminal for the way they rigged the case against Sheriff Arpaio. And the other second in command of the DNC is Keith Ellison, who is former black Muslim, Louis Farrakhan, likes to deny it, but it's true, first black Muslim elected to Congress. I mean, these are, this is not coming back into the center of American politics. This is the Democrats driving the car farther left off the ledge. These are very interesting times, look, and you're going to be in the heart of all of this stuff that's going on. And, uh, you know, very excited for you to have this opportunity from Washington, D.C., working for InfoWars. One thing, just to kind of circle back to Alex Jones, look, I think that people have a lot of impressions about him, and obviously he says things that make people very uncomfortable. But as I hear him speak, you know, I, of all places, I heard an interview that he did with Howard Stern. It was like an hour, and I don't think I really had any understanding of what he was like as a person until that. And to me, it just seems like at the end of the day, he's somebody who loves his country, but he hates the way that our elected officials treat us. Do you think that's a fair assessment of the way that Alex kind of looks at what he does? Oh, yes. I think, I think Alex is a patriot, and I think he has a passion for defending the United States of America. Now, for those on the left, they can't understand. You know, they want to define all this as fake news. Anything that's outside the left ideological little box has to be fake or false or discredited. The left is not interested in First Amendment. They don't want to hear anybody who disagrees with their climate science nonsense. You know, or anybody who says, okay, we've been giving all this money to the poor and all these programs since Lyndon Johnson. Why do we have more poverty today than ever? Or about the same. I mean, you know, it hasn't worked. The left doesn't want to hear that. So the ideological box that the left is in, which is increasingly more like a social democratic party on a European basis, 
ideologically driven, more socialist than American, is not in keeping with the fundamental political culture of this country. And the left can't accept that. And they, they're going, going farther and farther off. If they, if Elizabeth Warren's likely to be the next. Well, she's so striped, but she's going to make Hillary look good. She's, and the American people aren't going to go for it. They're going to keep rejecting it. They're going to keep rejecting the Democrats until the Democrats come around again. Is not the party of John Kennedy. It's not the party of Hubert Humphrey. It's the party of Bill Ayers and Karl Marx. Yeah, I think that there are obviously a lot of indications to point that it is a very different Democratic Party than, you know, I think under Hillary Clinton we would have seen kind of a continuation, but it's different than even it was under Bill Clinton. You know, you feel like not even bringing any of his private life into it, but just the way that he governed and his policies— I think that those aren't in step with what Democrats want to do now. You know, it, he didn't seem like it at the time, but Bill Clinton was actually a fairly moderate Democrat, at least by modern standards. You know, in 1992, it might not have felt that way. And it's just, it's kind of interesting. And I feel like what InfoWars does is that they try to hold the government accountable. And I think that a lot of media outlets, what they do is they know what they want the story to be. So they take whatever facts they can gather together and they put them in a bag and they're like, all right, well, this comes close to explaining our theory. So let's just run with it. Um, I know we, we only have a little bit more time, but one of the sort of big questions I wanted to ask to you, we're sort of talking about the democrat party and how that's changed i wanted to talk a little bit about the republican party do you feel like the leaders of the republican party are really interested in helping president trump or are they going to be an obstacle as some of these big issues come along well you've got really a, a major kind of division within the republican party the leadership is very much centrist more they're more democrat light i mean paul ryan and mcconnell and the washington crowd they're not conservatives the democratic party uh, is going farther to the left, but the Republican Party has never been a conservative party. I think Phyllis Schlafly, when she wrote her book, uh, you know, Choice Not an Echo, shows that this was the case even when Goldwater and Reagan ran, who had to fight against the Republican establishment, who have always been more in line uh, with um, Wall Street or moneyed interests, are closer to the Democrats. Democrats are also very interesting for Democratic Socialist Party, they draw a lot of their money from Wall Street and big banks. All their policies are influenced by Wall Street and big banks. Uh, the point is, when you get to a, a, a division like we have in the GOP, Donald Trump could have run as, really did run as an independent. He didn't run as a Republican. He, he, was, okay, he was a Republican, but the leadership opposed him. Um, you know, the, even at the convention, Ted Cruz wouldn't endorse him from the floor. Uh, the constant predictions he was going to lose, fighting him tooth and nail all the way through the election without great support. Donald Trump reached across, and he reached across to millions of people who would vote Democratic and would have voted for Hubert Humphrey, but are not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Obama was an exception. Obama was charismatic and was able to come across to people with an impression that he was a pragmatist and he was going to make things better. Uh, the idea, you know, I wrote The Abomination, trying to point out that this was a Saul Linsky radical who had been largely raised by Frank Marshall Davis, uh, a communist in Hawaii, newspaper writer from Chicago. Uh, but Americans weren't willing to accept that in 2008. And by 2012, you know, a second term, we had two centrist Republicans, McCain and Romney, 
in Phyllis Schlafly's argument, would have been just like a Tom Dewey. In other words, a Republican that just didn't generate any enthusiasm, another Me Too Democrat, as it were. Uh, and I'm terrible when it came even to McCain wouldn't let anybody say Barack Hussein Obama. And, and Romney did well in the first debate, and then his advisor said, now, don't be too tough on Barack. You'll, you'll turn people off if you look too... No, people want a campaign to be a, like a prize fight, and Donald Trump fought the prize fight. You know, it's very funny that you in. say that. I alluded to the online streaming show that I host. During the campaign, we actually called it Trump versus Hillary because we saw it as a prize fight, and that's really what it was. And as the election went on, it really reinforced that idea that it was Trump versus Hillary. Right, and I, and I think that you, we saw that, you know, the mainstream America, the America that Barack Obama ridiculed and berated for clinging to our Bibles and our guns, isn't ready to be a European social democratic country. We're not willing to be told by Brussels that we have to have our country flooded with unvetted immigrants. Uh, we're not ready to have you know, some other nation dictate what our laws ought to be. We're not ready to give up the First Amendment, including religious freedom. We're not ready to give up the Second Amendment, our gun rights, or Fourth Amendment in terms of search and seizure and the, and the sanctity of our homes. Why this electronic surveillance is so offensive, and I think it's going to become even more an offensive issue when we realize the massive extent to which the NSA and the CIA have been spying on Americans, which I suspect is going to come out and it will be uh, enough of a cause to severely restrict or maybe even close down one or both agencies. Uh, the American people are at the point where if you know, President Trump reduced the U.S. bureaucracy by half or two-thirds, most people would applaud. Yeah, that's the I, issue. I think that's something that no matter where you stand on the political spectrum, I think a lot of people can agree that, except, of course, for people who work for the federal government, most people can agree that government is too big and the idea of making it smaller probably won't adversely affect our lives. And in fact, it would indeed improve it. Uh, Dr. Corsi, these are all fascinating issues, and uh, I hope to get a chance to talk to you more about it as you really settle into your new job as the Washington Bureau Chief for InfoWars. Before I let you go, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk about a couple of your most recent books. I saw one that looked actually very funny. It's Goodnight Obama, which looks like the children's book, actually very similar to my son's favorite book at bedtime, Goodnight Moon. Can you talk about Goodnight Obama for a moment? Well, it was modeled on Goodnight Moon, and it's really a parody. It's meant to have the last laugh on President Obama as he left for policies I think most Americans didn't agree with. He's got the cover of uh, Obama sleeping on the desk of the Oval Office. He's got a cigarette burning in the ashtray in his pajamas, with his footy pajamas and his head cap. And you look out the window and there's the Muslim moon. And so that that's the nature of the, the book. It's poking fun at uh, the hypocrisy and the policies, extreme left policies of Obama. And it did very well. I think it will continue to do well among people who um, throughout this first year are still relieved that we don't have Hillary and <laughs> or a third term of Obama. Right. Yeah, that was the thing when I saw the book. I was like, oh, if only we were still doing the radio show when it came out, because I can imagine sending that up to Dennis and how he would have gotten a kick out of it. And finally, looking at your author page on Amazon, it tells me that you have a book that'll be released later this year. But I kind of remember you talking about this book a few years ago. So I'm wondering, is this a new edition of Hunting Hitler, new scientific evidence that Hitler escaped Nazi Germany? It's essentially just republishing the older one with a new introduction. 
Uh, what I would think I'm doing, uh, I've been thinking about very seriously, is a second volume of Who Really Killed Kennedy. May even do a little ebook on some of the new research I've got, you know, and put it up on Amazon as a Kindle. In October, we're supposed to get the last release of the information of the Kennedy documents, and I think it could merit another edition with some additional disclosures uh, of information that's come out even since I wrote uh, my book, which has been very well received, by the way. Take a look at the Amazon reviews. It's done extremely well at who really killed Kennedy. And I've been very pleased with how well it has been received critically. It continues to sell pretty briskly. I did it in 2013. That's an issue that I think people are continually fascinated about. I think that you have people like myself that often say, look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but something about the Kennedy assassination just doesn't make sense. And by something, I mean a number of things. People are always interested in reading more about it, having conversations about it. So yeah, to have that new evidence come out will probably certainly warrant another edition of the book. In any case, Dr. Corsi, I really appreciate you taking the time and having such a great chat with you. People should follow you on Twitter at Jerome underscore Corsi, and they'll see links to your work there as Washington Bureau Chief for InfoWars. Thanks again, Dr. Corsi. I really appreciate it. My great pleasure. Thank you, Christian. Look, that was a real treat talking to Dr. Corsi. I know that we always had fun with him when he was on the Dennis Miller show, but uh, he's a great guest. Love talking to him. I could talk to him for another hour and hopefully I get the chance to some point in the near future. So great to talk to Dr. Corsi. But joining me now is Jillian Melcher, who writes for Heat Street and is a fellow at the Steamboat Institute and the Independent Women's Forum. She's on Twitter at Jillian K, K-A-Y, the letter M, Jillian K-M, Jillian, welcome to the Blackcast. Thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, it's always great to get a chance to talk about the Dennis Miller Show with the people who were on. You, I looked it up, you were on the show also, 25 appearances on the show. And the most interesting thing about that is probably 15 of them, your name was said incorrectly, and you never corrected <laughs> Dennis. You were very polite about it. And when he found out that he'd been saying Jillian Melchior, which, I mean, you look at it, I think we can understand where that came from. You never tried to correct him. And I think I only found out because I heard you on something else where they said Melcher. So I wrote to you, I'm like, are we saying your name wrong? You're like, oh, yeah, that's okay. So did you ever think about telling Dennis that he was saying your name wrong? Or did you just want to go with the punches? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where he was one of the first radio shows I did pretty regularly. And, you know, I was kind of awestruck. So it was a big opportunity. Um, and I, I didn't really know what the polite protocol was with it. <laughs> with it. So well, the, the polite protocol would have been to tell his idiot producer who didn't ask you how to pronounce your name be like hey next time if there is a next time it's melcher but anyway as i talked to people who were guests on the show obviously those of us who worked on it we have a very different perspective it seems like people liked that dennis would let them talk about the issues they were on but it would always kind of be a much more informal fun conversation compared to other radio interviews yeah absolutely i mean he's such a big personality but also a great conversationalist so it was easy to go on and talk about things that you were passionate about or that you've been reporting on. But it was much more like talking to a friend over coffee than, than talking to a big host. Yeah, and I think that that was really what the approach was. Look, those hosts, I'm using air quotes, where they have the voice of God and everyone just sort of talks to the host, they do very well. Those are great kind of shows. But the kind of shows that I like, I like the ones that seem conversational. And especially when you do a podcast like I do now, you know, you spend a lot of time, you live inside people's ears and you're just kind of on the go with them. And just sort of having a friend with you like that, I, I think it's always a, a fun way to have the conversations because, look, there's a lot of serious conversations 
concerns in the world. There's some really interesting issues, but it doesn't all have to sound like NPR. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think one of the things that I always enjoyed on the show was, you know, call me kid. Hey, kid, go report. <laughs> That's true. I, do, I forgot about that. He did always call you kid. Yeah. And he, yeah, it's true. He had uh, he had nicknames. Our, our friend uh, Deborah Saunders, who wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle for the long, for a long time, but now she is the White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review Journal. At the end of every interview, he'd always say later Gator. And I think it, it threw her off the first time, but she just kind of liked it. It was a very informal calling people kid and Gator, things yeah, like you, that. You definitely build a rapport. Yeah, and, and that's why it was great. And, you know, you were one of our more regular guests in the last couple of years of the show. And it, it was never one of those situations where it was like, well, what am I going to talk to this person about now? I could tell the ones that he liked talking to. And he always enjoyed having you on. And uh, we appreciate you being on so many times. Obviously, you're very busy now. And doing the Black Cast is not the same as doing the Dennis Miller show. So as I said earlier, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about no, a few I, I love it. I love it. I will, I will always be on your podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I'll remember that when uh, I start asking you to join in on roundtables about movie reviews and things. <laughs> All right. Uh, so one of the issues that you've been writing about and I want to talk to you a little bit about is the Keystone XL pipeline, which I think a lot of people thought that if Hillary Clinton became president, it wasn't going to happen. Now, I think there are some people who thought that Hillary would have pushed it through if there was the right amount of money and all that. Now, it really seems to be something that is going to be happening it seems to be an important issue for President Trump. Talk a little bit about the fact that President Trump has issued a construction permit for the Keystone Pipeline and how much closer this brings us to it actually happening. Yeah, this, this really moves us forward. And I, I want to compare it to what happened under the Obama administration. So this is the permit that allows them to build between the U.S. and Canada. This crosses an international border. Should have been a pretty straightforward decision. Um, but the Obama administration delayed. So by the time the Trump administration approved it, it had been... 3,108 days. That is an insane delay. Uh, you could have a kid and it would be in grade school by that point. Um, and I, I think this was an important step. You know, pipelines have really become a target of the environmental movement in recent years. Their, their big strategy is basically that if you can go after pipelines as a mode of transportation, maybe that's going to make it more difficult to use oil. And so maybe you can attack the industry that way, keep the energy trapped in the ground. But I think the real irony, particularly with Keystone XL, is that this is a pipeline that's actually got a lot of environmental benefits. And it's not just me saying that. It's the Obama administration's own State Department. Um, they did five separate reviews looking very in-depth at the safety concerns, at the environmental concerns. And each time it came out in favor of Keystone XL. So when, when we're talking about decisions like this, it's really important that they're based on sound science, that we are looking at the environment and safety. But I think in this case, critics of the pipeline are actually the ones being anti-scientific. It's really interesting to hear you say that, actually, because, you know, we always hear who the anti-science people are and there seems to be on a very specific they seem to be really a very specific group of people with a very specific set of interests but the idea that the people in favor of this pipeline are actually the more environmentally conscious is very interesting uh, before we move on i wanted to point out it was very interesting that you said that it was 3108 days after 
the Trans Canada company first applied to the State Department to build the cross-border pipeline. I saw that in the article you wrote about this. And you talked about having a grade school child. So I, I looked it up while you were talking. I was multitasking. I have a 20-month-old little boy named Felix. He is 611 days old. And this was 3,108 days. And, you know, the year and a half since I've had my son has kind of flown by, but it's also it's also aged me a little bit. So I can't imagine taking 3,108 days. Was it just because the Obama administration had no interest in this? Well, I think this is a problem that Democrats are facing across the board right now. They've got two kind of competing constituencies. On one hand, you've got organized labor that's been a huge funder of Democratic political causes. But on the other, you have this green movement that's becoming a bigger part of their constituency. So I think those, those two groups have interests that are often directly pitted against each other. Um, it turns out with Keystone XL, under the Obama administration, the environmentalist one under Trump, who has seen that vulnerability and made a play for labor voters, the labor interest one. What do you think happens next now that this has been approved? Where do we go? Where do you think we'll be with the Keystone Pipeline a year from now? I think there is still going to be some legal challenges to it. This isn't something that the Green Movement is going to give up on. But again, going back to that time frame, okay, so this is a $7 billion shovel-ready infrastructure project, and it's not going to cost taxpayers a single dollar. It's probably better for the environment if you look at transporting uh, energy by pipeline as opposed to rail or terrain. It's less carbon intensive. The risk of a spill, while it does exist, is pretty minute. It's probably less of an environmental risk than rail and road. So I think this is a no-brainer, and I do hope that they're able to move forward with it. In writing about this, you pointed out that in 2013, there were more train-related crude oil spills in that one year, 2013, than the entire 37 years prior combined. Talk a little bit about what happened. There's a specific instance that you give in Quebec, and uh, my French is terrible, so I am not going to try <laughs> and say the name of it, but I'm going to allow my you idea. to try and pronounce it for us. Yeah, so this is actually a really sad story. So what we're seeing is that as the energy boom is going on, a lot more energy is traveling by rail and road. Um, and in Canada, that went really badly. Um, in 2013, there was a crude oil train that derailed. It went barreling into this town, 62 miles an hour, and exploded. 47 people died. I think there were about 26 children who were orphaned. If you look at uh, the aerial map of the downtown right after that disaster, um, it looks like, I don't know, Dresden. It's really, really dramatic. So in addition to the loss of life, um, you also saw 1.5 million gallons of oil. Some of it ended up seeping into the ground. Some of it ended up contaminating a nearby waterway. It's been considered one of the biggest, if not the biggest, environmental disasters in Canadian history. So that's what we're looking at. That's the risk. If you look comparatively at pipelines, those do happen. There's no risk-free way of transporting energy. But what we have seen is that technology has gotten a lot better. 99.999% um, of the time, it ends up getting to its destination safely. The spills that do occur, the majority of them are about a meter or less, a square meter or less. And if you look at the technology used with Keystone XL pipeline or the Dakota Access pipeline, um, they've got round-the-clock monitoring. So the second a spill starts, they can swoop in and fix it. So I think if we're looking at that, first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that there, there are risks associated with anything that you 
you do. But it's important to see, like, Black Megantic versus a pipeline. Uh, this is probably the safer, more environmentally friendly way to proceed. Right. But, of course, since the Green Movement is saying that the pipeline is bad for the environment, they're going to continue to support the idea that train transport or truck transport are better for the environment. And, of course, the biggest irony is the idea that having a truck filled with gasoline is good for the environment because you're, of course using gasoline to move the trucks around and you have disasters like this on the trains i don't know i think that it seems like a segment of the population the segment of the voting population that they're just going to latch onto an issue and they're like well that's how we feel about it and i don't think that there's really any debating the facts on any of these issues the idea is the pipeline is bad let's not have the pipeline i I don't think that there's going to be any movement on that do you no I don't, but I think that's really unfortunate because these these decisions are important. They need to be made in a wise way, but it, it's really essential that we be looking at the facts on this. That's what the Obama State Department did by very in-depth reviews, and it found out that if you failed to build Keystone XL, you would actually see carbon emissions increase by 42%. That's through transportation. Now, pipeline, people who are opposed to the pipeline say that it's carbon intensive. That's based on the idea that if they can find new transportation, that they're going to keep the, the oil trapped in the Alberta tar sands. State Department disagrees because that's not going to happen. Uh, the energy is going to end up being pulled out of the ground anyway, but it's going to travel longer distances. It's going to travel by dirtier methods. So I would really urge people to look at the facts on this. They're really important, and I think there's room for compromise. I don't know if we live in an age where most people agree that facts are important, but for what it's worth, I agree that facts are important. And another issue that you've been writing about is a different pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline. I think a lot of people heard about the Dakota Access Pipeline as it related to the Standing Rock protests. Talk a little bit about a piece that you wrote about a month ago, but that the protests were ending with a whimper. That was the title of the piece you wrote. Talk about why that happened and sort of where we stand now a month out from the piece that you wrote. Well, it it had dwindled off, but after quite a lot of bangs, um, (laughs) I think the end of it was a bit anticlimactic. Basically, this is an issue that I was really interested in, having grown up in Wyoming, um, grown up exposed to Native American rights, and seeing the way that the federal government has historically perpetuated a lot of justice among American Indians. This is an issue that I, I was concerned about. But what I saw when I started looking into this was that the facts that we're getting out on Facebook, on Twitter, weren't actually facts at all. For starters, I was surprised to see that the Dakota Access Pipeline didn't go through the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. I was surprised to see how many times the pipeline's map had been changed to make sure that it was being protective of potentially historic sites, um, of environmental issues. They really did a good and thorough job of this. And the Standing Rock who unfortunately didn't show up to meetings. Energy Transfer, the company behind the pipeline, repeatedly tried to get them to sit down and talk, share their concerns, figure out a solution. They didn't show up. And then they started protesting. But I think the saddest part of this was that the environmental movement essentially hijacked their cause. So the Standing Rocks who were concerned, all of a sudden you've got this influx of thousands of outside protesters, some of them professional protesters, some of them who used very violent illegal tactics. And I think if you're looking at a place like, you know, North Dakota, this is a small community um, for a really long time in that area. Um, Native Americans had a really good relationship with their neighbors. And when you've got the environmental movement hijacking uh, a cause like this, 
it created all sorts of community tensions that are going to last long after those protesters pack up and leave. And I think going on that, one of the sadder parts of this is the protesters who came in weren't themselves environmentally responsible. They left behind an insane amount of trash. Um, that trash was so bad that when the snow started melting, the state was concerned that it was going to create an environmental disaster. It was going to flood into the river. So I think you've seen the green movement come in and take advantage of this in a really cynical way, and it's hurt both the community and the environment. Yeah, of course, the green movement, the protesters, are going to be the ones who are least cognizant of their own carbon footprint. But they're making sure that they're there and their voices are being heard. But uh, God forbid they should have to throw away their trash or, you know, take it with them. As anyone who's ever gone into a national park or camping knows, you know, you take your trash with you. But no, 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 not not when they're doing that. And uh, I hadn't realized the extent of the problem, what you explained after the snow melted. So... I guess that irony is lost on that contingent as well. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about before I let you go was another piece, another pipeline. I was not aware of this story until I saw your piece on it. Talk a little bit about how there was a police shootout that unfortunately killed a man who had shot a controversial Florida pipeline. So in keeping with the trend of the environmental left targeting pipelines as a political cause, in Florida, you've got this Deval Trail pipeline, and it, that, that's been protested to People have gone outside and ticketed. They've called it the Standing Rock of Florida. But what happened was, back in February, there was a guy who went to the site, fired a high-power rifle at it, and then took off on, in his car. And police ended up having to chase him, essentially. Um, he drew his weapon on state troopers and sheriff's deputies, and they shot and killed him. So definitely a tragic situation, but I think there are two things that are, are kind of disturbing and important about this story. The first is looking at the reaction to it. It's pretty shocking, I think. Balance for Earth had a video, and it actually said that of, of this man who drew his gun on authorities, that someone stood up and took action on behalf of all of us. We don't know who it is, but we, we know that someone stood up, and as a result, they were killed for their action. We're here to honor and memorialize them. So you've got this man who threatened the lives of law enforcement and the environmental movement, or at least a large portion of it, is saying that, that that's something that's honorable, that's something that, that should be commemorated and, and respected. I think that's very disturbing. It's very disturbing that they're ignoring the fact that he, as you said, he had a weapon on police. So if they didn't shoot and kill him, he very well could have killed police. And meanwhile, they're saying he was killed for his taking a stand for all of us, not for the fact that he was threatening law enforcement. And I don't know, at this point, nothing surprises me. I wanted to say that it's so surprising, but it's it's just sad, like you're saying, that that's the reaction to it. Yeah. And I think we're seeing more and more of this for some reason with the pipeline protests more than anything. But if you look at Standing Rock, the line that the protesters were trying to get at the media was that they're, this is peaceful and prayerful protests that were water protectors. But when I started looking into the police records, when I started looking at the actual uh, facts behind this, it was not peaceful and prayerful. Um, you had at times protesters throwing Molotov cocktails at cops. You had um, them throwing stones at police officers. I, I talked to ranchers in the area that said that things were stolen from their property, that they felt threatened and intimidated. I talked to a business owner who said that he actually received death threats from the protesters. I think we're seeing this attitude that violent tactics or vandalism or unlawful tactics are legitimate. 
um, ways to pursue this environmental activism. And that, that's something that I think is really going to undermine their legitimacy. We can have political disagreements about where to draw the lines on these things. But I think the second that you resort to this sort of unlawful behavior, particularly when it's violent, you just lose credibility. At this point, I wonder how much credibility there is there to be lost. But I don't know. It's like you said, it is it is so sad. And, you know, there is actually one other thing I wanted to talk to you about. Another piece that you wrote. Talk a little bit about how there was this incident at Orange Coast College and a professor was recorded in an anti-Trump rant. And that professor got a Faculty of the Year award, and then also the student who recorded it. That's what the real issue seems to be for the college. Yeah, so you had a professor who was in a human sexuality course, and the professor was opposed to Trump. Okay, we can all have different political opinions. But rather than doing her job in teaching, the professor decided that this was an appropriate setting to air her political comments in a way that, that if you were maybe a Trump supporter, you would have felt uncomfortable her comments were obviously hyperbolic and extreme. Um, she said that Trump's election wasn't just something she disagreed with. It was an act of terrorism for people to vote for him. So that's the level of extremity. So you had a student in a class, 19 years old, Trump supporter, who ended up filming her. It got posted online. It went viral. Looking at the way that Orange Coast College responded, it, it's pretty dramatic. Yeah, so they, the they called the recording of it, they said Gestapo tactics, which is... Uh... I mean, I feel like when people throw terms around like that, when they compare people to Hitler, when they compare people to Nazis, I almost feel like they don't either remember or they never really learned just how terrible those people were. Yeah, exactly. It's a weird moral equivalency. I think you can be really, really skeptical of Donald Trump and very critical of some of the choices that he's made, but also realize that, like, that's not the same as an act of terror. <laughs> it's yeah. just not the same thing. So Orange Coast College, when, when they looked at this, they tried to expel the student who put this recording online. They wanted to kick him out of school. It would have been on his disciplinary record. He would have had to write an apology letter to the professor if he wanted to return. They ended up backing down on this only when the student threatened to sue. Uh, that's pretty dramatic, I think. Comparatively, if you look at the way that they dealt with this professor, it wasn't saying you should create a classroom environment that's ideologically inclusive. They didn't tell her, hey, you need to give students with all political opinions a chance to express themselves. They ended up doing nothing. She didn't get a reprimand. And in fact, this, this last week, she accepted the Faculty of the Year Award, the highest award that they give out to an instructor. They gave that to her. So you saw a student who was, I, I think he felt targeted for his political beliefs. Use transparency, use the internet to raise awareness of what he saw as bias on campus. And the university sidelined him and honored the professor that had done this. Um, I, I think that's, that's really indicative of the so-called campus climate in higher ed right now. Yeah, and the reason I wanted to talk to you about that, Jillian, is because that's the sort of story that I knew would have driven Dennis crazy. But at the same time, it also reinforced his outlook on a lot of the stuff that he saw which was to just sort of cite Atlas Shrugged, which he read within the last five, six years. I forget exactly when he read it. And he just kind of took it literally and he shrugged at a lot of stuff. He's like, well, I can't spend too much of my day worrying about people who just don't look at the world the way I do. 
And unfortunately, we're at a point where a lot of people are looking at everything in the world completely differently. And it's not at a point, you know, you said earlier, people should just read facts and make their own decisions. People aren't interested in taking facts, especially when they disagree with their own personal viewpoint. And they definitely don't really want to sit down and talk about the other side. And uh, it's very disappointing that we don't have that. But as Dennis would also have said, it's not surprising. And that's the part that makes it really sad. Yeah, you know, I think one of the more ironic parts of this story is that right now, if you look at higher education, if you, if you read the college news, they are absolutely obsessed with this idea of inclusion. Um, it's a buzzword that they throw around all the time. We're going to have an inclusive campus climate. But pretty often, when they say that they're going to have an inclusive environment, what they actually mean is that they're going to have an environment where certain political and cultural ideas are excluded. Where if you have a perspective that they don't like, they're going to consider that a threat. Potentially, they've begun saying that words are violent. So if you have a different opinion, they may consider you somebody who's a violent person. And they'll move to silence you. So what we're seeing is that in the name of inclusion, what higher education is doing is actually ideologically and politically exclusive. I think the solution to this is more political diversity on campus. Well, I definitely agree with you. I wonder if we'll get to see it. But a great way to keep tabs on how all of this unfolds is to, of course, read your pieces at Heat Street and it's heatst.com. And, of course, follow you on Twitter at Jillian K-A-Y, the letter M. Julian Melcher. Julian, thank you so much for spending some time to chat with me here on the Blackcast. It was great catching up with you, and I look forward to talking to you again in the near future. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening to another installment of the Blackcast as we celebrate 10 years of the Dennis Miller Show. Now, we'll be back with another all-new episode on Friday. I'll be joined by Herman himself, Peter Noon. So make sure to check out that episode when it's posted on Friday. Special thanks again to all of our guests. Special thanks to all of you. And we will see you then next time on the Blackcast Tribute to The Dennis Miller Show on Westwood One.